Hey everybody, welcome. Welcome to the final episode of The Well. Of course, I am your loving host, Dylan Bowman, and yes, this is the final episode before we change the name. No, it is not going anywhere. The show will remain more or less the same, uh, but we are going to be rebranding the show starting next week. It will officially become the Pillars podcast. And for those who didn't hear last week's episode, we announced the launch of our new mobile app for runners, which is called Pillars. And we are so excited to release that into the universe in just a few days. Uh, But just as a reminder here at the top of the podcast that we have decided to rebrand the show starting next week to bring it into alignment with the app. So this will be the last edition of The Well. And the show, again, will officially be called The Pillars Podcast next week. Uh, You will not have to resubscribe. So there's nothing that's required of you except to continue listening. And another quick thing on the app, Um, super excited, very happy with the response we received after the announcement last week. I got loads of really nice notes on Instagram and email, which made me very happy. And uh, we are even more excited to share the actual product with you in just a few days. Um, I've also received lots of messages with ideas about material that people want to see inside the app. So if you have creative ideas and relevant expertise that would work within the architecture of the physical and emotional fitness, please do hit me up on Instagram and let me know. My handle is at Dylan Bow, or you can email me at Dylan at pillars.com. And if you haven't done so already, please do check out our website, which is pillars.com. Sign up for our mailing list. And also please do follow us on Instagram, which, uh, where our handle is at pillars. We'll be making more announcements about the launch and pricing and future content additions on those channels. So join us and don't miss out. All right, to officially tie a Christmas bow on the well, this week's episode is a best of from the first 12 months of the podcast. As I've said many times, doing this podcast was the silver lining of 2020 for me. And I can't believe we've already done 36 episodes. And uh, it seems like a lot of the, the real podcasters out there do a best of compilation from some of their favorite material from the past year. So I felt compelled to go back through the archive and pull out some of the good stuff from our amazing guests to re-share with you all. There was so much to go through. It was actually really exhausting to kind of pull this all together. A lot of stuff we had to leave out, but a lot of good stuff in this episode too. So let's get right into it. To start this best of pod, let's go all the way back to episode one with my guest, Carlton McCoy. Carlton is a friend and former colleague uh, who is also a master sommelier and a phenom in the world of wine. And in this clip, we hear about Carlton's training techniques leading into the master sommelier exam, which I found super fascinating, especially in relationship to our training as athletes. Okay, it's been a crazy year. Let's end it on a high note and step into 2021 with a renewed sense 
of optimism. Best of the well. Let's go. From the beginning, what, what helped me to be more successful was I made a decision very on, early on and I recognized that there were gonna have to be major sacrifices that, um, you know, I, I, I was not gonna be able to have hobbies outside of what I was doing, like zero. Uh, there was no, there was no free time. Because you're working also in the exactly. restaurant I'm while you're fully also, working. also studying. Um, and, um, I keep wanting to say training, but I should say studying. So we, we call it training. Oh, you is know? that right? We do, we oh, call it cool. training. Yeah, we call it training for masses. <laughs> See, it's, a, it's yeah. a perfect parallel. Yeah, and it really is. And, um, you know, um, so you're working in the restaurant like what, 40, 50 hours a week. And then how, how much are you studying? We would, so, so this is my routine. Uh, I would wake up in the morning, um, have a cup of coffee, have breakfast and go straight to, there was a Starbucks across the street from the Mandarin Oriental where I was working. And I would get up, I would shower, shave. Uh, in, in DC, it was always humid as hell. So I never wore my work clothes to work. I would come with a garment bag and a huge duffel. This is before a lot of wine information was online. Mm -hmm. So I had a huge duffel bag with like 10 books, books. in it and no, all my notebooks. So I'd go to the Starbucks and I was set at the same table for almost four years, <laughs> like every morning. And I would go in and I would sit there all day. Uh, and back then, you know, I was incredibly unhealthy. Yeah. I'd never worked out in my life and I smoked cigarettes. So I would, I would wake up in the morning and I would um, get shower, get dressed, load up my, my duffel bag, my clothes, and we'll go straight to the, I was at Starbucks by 10 a.m. And I went to work at 2 p.m. So I would, work, I would study for four hours every morning. And I would, um, I would study a region and I would go for about an hour and then I would walk around outside of Starbucks, chain smoking cigarettes, like stressed out, and then sit back down in another hour and then go out and smoke and then sit down another hour. And I would just like this and I was reciting things and just going. And it would so go you're for pacing around sort of like front of the trying Starbucks. to memorize things? And the whole staff knew me. Yeah. And they knew it was my table. And I, I don't know if they ever reserved it for me, but no one ever sat at the table. It was always me. And this is a busy city, but the table was always available. So I'm guessing they just, and I always tipped them well and I took care of them, but I did that and then I would go to work because I was also running the cheese program. We have a cheese cart of like 40 cheeses in the, in the restaurant. So I'd go in an hour before the rest of the staff at two to um, uh, organize and order all the cheeses because I ran the cheese program as well. Mm. So I did that and then I started working in the wine program. So I started just lugging cases around. And where that helped me was seeing the labels and I could memorize the producers by looking at the labels. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would come in every day, do the cheese, and then for a half hour, I would just lug cases around the cellar for mm -hmm. Andy. Uh, and then I would get dressed and then work my server shift. It was, it was a tasting menu style restaurant, so we'd be there to 12 to 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. And then we would blind taste. And then I would go home somewhere between wow. two or three. So you're basically sort of like working on your craft or actually working from 10 a.m. to one or you, two o'clock in the morning. Just going, and then I would go home, I'd sit on the back patio, have an ice cold beer, smoke, smoke cigarettes, <laughs> and then go to bed and wake up and do it all over again. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. And yeah. I mean, it, it really does sort of echo, you know, the sort of like obsessiveness that you need sure. in order to, to be successful at anything, particularly in in a field where it is competitive and where it's so difficult to reach that that uppermost level do you have like any specific like very specific things that you think you did that really helped you in terms of uh, memorization techniques or tasting techniques or just anything training related that you sure. helped you know, for, for, for me through uh, what we were doing, it became um, apparent very early on that you had to, for me, I had to 
everyone everyone's everyone's brain works differently, mm-hmm. and they retain information very very differently. Um, so some people are audible. You know, some people need to write things to memorize them, you know, visual. Um, and, you know, if you've seen, you know, the Psalm documentary, you know, they have these flashcards and people are doing Love this. That. I tried that and it didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I realized that um, I needed to have full understanding of a region or a style to, to memorize it. So what I started doing was um, I realized I was an incredibly visual person and I couldn't memorize wine by little facts like that. Like, mm-hmm. what is this weird little question about the small region. What, so what I would do is I, I got an artist portfolio, this massive artist portfolio that had these transparencies and I would hand draw out these maps of these regions and draw in all the rivers and the mountain ranges and which way the wind blew and you know everything. Really? And, I, and then I would leave this big size on the side and I would, I would write down all these facts and I would see the whole page and let's say it was like Chablis and I would do a map of Chablis and I would draw out where all the premier crew and the Grand Cru vineyards were and the river was and the soil types here and you gotta who produces it, you know, what climates are in it. And I would see the whole page and I would memorize the entire page. And what I would do when I would go in my exam is I would close my eyes and I could see the entire page. And it was almost like I was a scanner. I downloaded that information into my head. So when the question came about Chablis, I would close my eyes and I would see the entire page of Chablis and I could almost like, I could just recite to you what I was seeing on the page. Um, so that's just how I retain information. And, and so what I would say was I had to I had to realize that early on that was how I retain information mm-hmm. or it wouldn't have worked for me. And I think that a lot of people that, that are going for the exam try to follow how someone else studies and you have to find your own way and what mm. works for you and how you operate. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Just the, just thinking about drawing it out and the mountain ranges and the yeah. water sources and the wind direction is yeah. all, that's so But cool. you end up, you literally are painting the picture of what this region is and it's ingrained in your mind. Mm-hmm. You, you have, instead of knowing this one little silly fact, you have a full understanding about what everything in this region is mm-hmm. really about. Okay, clip number two, we hear from my friend Hillary Allen about how she dealt with recovering from a near deadly fall and battled her way back to the top of ultra running. Literally just that moment of going to the coffee shop and coming back, I'd have to sleep the rest of the day. Mm. Or I would just like get home and I'd just start crying and I wouldn't know what to do. Um, it just seemed so overwhelming that like, honestly, there were days where I just, I didn't, I I wish the accident would have killed me. Yeah. That sounds like super dark. And obviously I'm, I'm grateful that I was alive and that I wasn't paralyzed. And at the same time, I felt this extreme darkness, this extreme pain, anger, sadness. It wasn't just gratitude for being alive. It was just, I was, I was lost in the difficulty of the day-to-day life and the uncertainty. I mean, I don't really deal well with uncertainty. I'm an athlete. I like to plan. I like build my year around races and training blocks. And I literally had to focus on even like a moment at a time just to get through a day. Yeah. And that is, that was just really, that was really difficult for me. Um, and but the uncertainty of not knowing what my future looked like, not knowing if I would be able to do something that I honestly loved right. so much. And, and it's your identity. You know, you've been an athlete yeah, your whole life. My and whole it's life, yeah. What you love to do. And and I feel like, you know, being an athlete makes me a better person. And yeah. so like that was the the emotional part. I mean, like I had that journal. I would literally have to write these thoughts down so I could get them out uh-huh. or talk to someone 
that was really cool is like learning who I could really talk to and trust and, um, you know, say these ugly emotions, um, with what was going through my mind. Um, Interesting. It, so like the journal and mm-hmm. maybe like some talk therapy sort of helped you process yeah. some of that stuff. Yeah. And honestly, so, I mean, without writing for me has always been very cathartic because I can just, it's like no judgment. I can just say yeah. whatever's on my mind. <laughs> no one's going to be share like, it with anybody. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if they read it, they'd be like, damn, Hill, yeah. like that's dark. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was just really important for me. And I think, um, I, I think, I, I basically I had this book, this this page in my in my journal that I ear that I like dog eared and like marked so I could come back to it. And it was this list of affirmations. And I knew that I didn't have to believe them at the time, but I would just like make myself say them or read them. And sometimes like it would just be like it'd be just like, ah oh, fuck, okay. Can like, you give an example? Is it like I will be a champion? <laughs> QI, the tiger music. No, um, (laughs) uh, no. So the one that actually has been the biggest influence in my life was, um, like progress is not perfection. Mm -hmm. Um, honor my process, whether that's like honoring my process means like, if you're feeling like shit today or you're feeling like all any emotion, like you're honoring it, like you have to create space and acknowledge those emotions in order for you to move forward. And another big one is that believe that my best athletic days are ahead of me. Yes. Yes. And I like, I remember reading this and like my friend Alan Lim over from scratch, he's like, yeah, Hill, like you have to say this. You have to say this to yourself. And some days I'd be just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Believe in my best athletic days are ahead of me. Like, fuck. Like, I don't even know if I believe it, but I would say it. And it wasn't until like literally it took me a year and a half to even start believing that. Wow. And it wasn't until I finished TDS this year that I actually, actually truly believe it. believe it. Well, I think that's a, a good segue. <laughs> and it's really a beautiful thing to hear as, you know, somebody who's been struggling with injury myself. <laughs> yeah. But And my wife uh, encourages me to do mm-hmm. similar stuff all the time. Yeah. And I always feel similarly yeah. kind of like fraudulent where I'm like, well, I don't really believe this. Yeah. Like, why would I say it to myself or why right? would I write it down? It's but hard. For there's like, value in it, I there guess. There is. Yeah. And you know, it's like, it's that crazy thing with what we do. I mean, running an ultra marathon, it's, it takes so much physical training, but like literally there's, I mean, it's such a mental race too. Like you want to be, you have to want to. You have to believe yeah. that you can do it. And you have to want to be there. You have to want to want it. Like you need to be like, I mean, you were saying, I remember you were saying this the other day, um, is that like when you're in an emotionally good place, like training just comes so easy. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in a race. And so it's like this accident taught me that it's obviously, I knew this like from a logical standpoint that training isn't just about the physical side. Like you have to be mentally tough. And I, and I thought logically it's like, oh yeah, I'm good with this. Like, even if it's raining or snowing, like I can go out there and like tough it out and gut it out. Like I'm a stubborn person. Like I can do this, but it's much more. It's actually, you know, um, working on that mental and emotional peace and the emotional health of you as a human being. Yeah, it's critical. In this next clip, we hear from my big brother, Jason Bowman, talking about his experience with 10-day meditation retreats and the benefits meditation can have on our daily lives. So do you think that experience, as painful as it was in the moment, potentially helped remove that or at least help you process and recognize that fear of loss in your 
daily life. Like yeah. it sounds again, going back to this analogy of brain surgery that you were eight days in searching your subconscious and your subconscious finally hit something that then rose to the surface. Yeah. And when, when that thing rises to the surface, then are you more able to then recognize it and process it practically in your daily life outside of retreat experience? Yeah, so this is gonna be the hardest thing for me to um, answer with clarity and intelligence because I'm certainly no Vipassana teacher and other people will be way better equipped to do so. But the idea is this, whenever you experience anything, you're experiencing it as a sensation. Whenever you react to anything, you're experiencing it as a sensation. Any experience, any words of praise or any words of ridicule, um, any promotion, any relationship ending, everything that you experience is experienced as a sensation, including things that you see, things that you hear, things that you taste. What you're actually relating to is a sensation that is created in your physical body that becomes of that experience. Mm -hmm. So in the practice of Vipassana, you put all of your attention onto the realm of sensation. And the reason why you do that is because your subconscious mind is all the time, 100% of the time, including when you're asleep, reacting to sensation. That's why you shift around in bed mm. when you're not conscious. It's because there's a sensation, your subconscious reacts to the sensation, which makes you flip over to the other mm. side. It's also the thing that makes you reach for your phone when you have a sad thought or you feel lonely. Mm. You're not doing it because you're thinking about it. You're doing it because you're reacting to a sensation that exists in your body. Oh. So, and again, like I, I hope that made any sort of sense just now, but yeah. the, the implication of that is that you're working not on your intellect, you're working on reprogramming the way that your subconscious mind craves things and averts itself to, to things. Mm. And this is why they say that the practice should immediately without any delay provide fruit in your normal day-to-day -day life. Mm. And it's because you're not reading about it, you're not hearing someone else talk about it, you're not intellectualizing it, you're actually practicing it. So that when a sad thought comes, you don't flail. Mm. You don't have a phone to reach towards. Mm. You don't have a TV to turn on, you don't have a refrigerator to open. You just have to sit there and be like, okay, sad thought. and see that that thought is accompanied by an entirely unique pattern of sensations in the body that then you can observe the sensation, hopefully with a glimmer of, again, equanimity. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, what you come to see is that the objects of sadness and the objects of loneliness are actually kind of comical. Um, but when we when we don't face them as sensations, which is like what we do all day, every day, mm -hmm. when we are completely surrounded by distractions of all sorts, um, what happens when you don't have distractions is that you just sit with them and they and they become entertaining in a sense. Um, they're just a little bit more removed from your sense of self. When when you don't face them, th this is what creates this kind of objectless fear that I have experienced and still do experience, I think everybody experiences, of just this underlying angst mm -hmm. that is sometimes very mild and sometimes pronounced. And it's it's 
it's the objects of sadness and the objects of loneliness underneath the surface as sensations that make you feel fatigued mm. and that make you feel afraid and that make you just feel overall ill at ease. Um, so it's the craving of things that we don't have or the aversion to things that we are experiencing that we're hopefully becoming more aware of with right. this practice. Well, yeah, and it goes both ways. So the, the presence of an object of aversion or the absence of an object right. of attachment. Mm. And and um, what you what you come to see very quickly, well, not very quickly, it took me like eight <laughs> years, but one of the, the most important kind of way stations is learning that there's no one to provide what you feel you're lacking. Yeah. And there's no one that can take away what you don't want. And when, again, you can flip those things into, it's so hard to describe, but you, what you learn to do is not fixate on the object that you want or the object that you don't want, but you learn to relate to your sensations because of the presence or the absence of those things. Mm -hmm. Your reaction to those sensations is entirely under your control. Yeah. The presence or the absence of those things is entirely outside of your control. Mm. Beautiful. Next up is Ellie Greenwood, one of the all-time greats in ultra running, talking about her mentality as an athlete and how she made the most of her racing opportunities to get the best out of herself when it mattered most. And you talk about the laser focus and it sort of leads into what I want to talk about next, which is just kind of like the mentality of the athlete and particularly like being one of the best at what you do, right? And I think one of the things that I've just been thinking a lot recently is about this with like the recent passing of Kobe Bryant, who is like obviously one of the best at his sport of all time and famous not only for his talent, but because he just worked his ass off and that he had that like what he called the Mamba mentality. Yeah, And I think that's something that separates you know, people like you from people like me. And you, you mentioned <laughs> last night something that I thought was really interesting. This is two modest people having a conversation. No, well, I mean, but realistically, Ellie, <laughs> like I haven't won comrades. I haven't won Western States. And I don't know how much of that is due to, you know, talent versus. So, so hold on, hold on. Okay, so, so, but you mentioned last night, which I thought was really interesting on this theme that, there was, it was something to the effect of like, I can't remember what you were talking about, but it was, was it about Ann Trayson's record? Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And you said, you know, people thought it was untouchable. And I thought, you know, she's a woman. I'm a woman. I don't think she was on performance enhancing drugs. I'm not on performance enhancing drugs. I think I can beat the record. And I think that's yeah, okay, sort of like Okay, can we rephrase that second bit? Not that I think I can break the record, but people that say, sorry, because that sounds like... Sure, sure. But, yeah, people that, oh, that's impossible. Well, if you say something's impossible, I agree, uh, you've now made it impossible for right. yourself, right? So, but this leads and, into my question, yeah. though, about the mentality. Have you always had that, like, self-belief in yourself? No, and I would argued in okay i think people that have too much self-belief that's a bad thing yeah. right because if you think oh i'm the best and i'm awesome and i've trained harder than everybody yeah, yeah well 
do you know what? Everybody else at the start line, well, not everybody, but the majority have trained hard as well, right? So don't think you're so special, right? So now, obviously, if you're super unconfident, oh, I'm not very good at this, right? Then you're talking yourself out of like doing well, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that balance of being confident enough of going, well, maybe I could do this, but also having that like, you know, like I never thought I was a particularly talented runner. I was just prepared to put in the hard work, Mm -hmm. right? And because I thought, yeah, I really want to do this. And I think if I work really hard, I'll do it. But I didn't have so much confidence that I was like, well, I don't need to work hard. Of course. Do you see what I mean? Well, that's that's sort of like how I framed it with Kobe, right? He had the talent. Yeah. He had the work ethic. But then the third thing, critically, to be like at that top, top, top level is that belief in yourself that you you can do it, right? And um this is a good time. Anyway, so uh, I was speaking to a coaching client the other day, mm-hmm. Lucia Buhler. She okay. says, hi, uh, you went past her at uh, Sean O'Brien. Oh, she cool. was the winning woman. Oh, cool. Yeah, Swiss woman. Lots of tattoos. If okay, you anyway, yeah. yeah. And she loved like a little interaction with her on the trail. <laughs> cool. Anyway, so I was saying, Lucia was kind of saying the same thing. She was like, do I just not have this like absolute like level? And I did say to her, I said, I mean, one thing, and I don't know if you can learn this or if, you know, because I wouldn't say I'm super competitive at lots of other stuff, like not competitive mentality, right? Um, but I said, you know, like I would go to races and if I thought I could get the course record, it was like, yeah, well, I want to make that course record as hard as possible, yeah, yeah. right? Rather than just some people might go, oh, I want to win or I come top 10, right? Whereas I'll give an example, and this is a deviation, right? So I went to... Uh, Comrade in 2015, where I had interrupted injury, I'd come off my bike and broken my hand and had head and surgery and whatever. So I went to Comrades in 2015 thinking, well, I'm not going to do great. So do you know what? I did not do great. Ah. Then later that year, I went to Tomplier, um, like 75k race in France. Yep. And I went, do you know what? I'm not entirely sure how fit I am. If you're fifth, I want to try get fourth. Yeah. If I want fourth, I want to try get third, yeah. right? And it's not being unhappy with where you're at, but it's going, can I go that extra mm. little like half percent or 1% and that might be enough, right? That is so cool and interesting. Because I, yeah. I, it's, yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I think it really is one of those things that separates the the good athletes from like the truly great athletes. And like... You know, again, to go back to Jim Walmsley, he sort of has that sort of swagger too, where, you know, clearly he's got the great talent. He works his ass off in training, but like he sort of has that self-belief and that like risk-taking ability, like maybe to a degree that you don't... He's way more of a risk-taker than not compare you guys. No, no, no. Yeah. I just think that... Again, like just thinking about this mama mentality thing, I, I think is is interesting. Um, you know, as somebody who aspires and to, that's <laughs> to run faster. Well, and having that slightly like, you know, okay, yeah. going back to comrades in 2014, it yeah. was like, I was well aware, like when I took the lead, I was like, this is now or never. Yeah. You, and it turns out, uh, even at the time, I was like, you may never be in this situation again. Well, no, I haven't been. Right. Yeah, but, huh. you know, having that, like, it's not next week. It's, where, it's like now, yeah. right? And I think Jim has that, right? Of like, you know, mm. okay, I'm going for it today. Yeah. 
Next up is champion ultra runner Pau Capel, where he's talking about his victory at UTMB in 2019 and what it was like to achieve such an amazing goal. Just to go back to last year's UTMB race, mm -hmm. as a spectator and a fan of the sport, your run there was just like so incredible. Such an amazing I race. Think, yeah. So first of all, like with some perspective, how did that performance kind of change your life? I, for in UTMB? Yeah. I think that I arrived in my best moment of my life. Yeah. Uh, it's the day that all the stars, stars yeah. all the stars are in the same way. Yeah. I had my family. I had the girlfriend, yeah. my friends. I had a good training. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. We did the best race that I, yeah. I could imagine. But not only me, eh? yeah. all the team. Yeah. I arrived in the checkpoint and all the family said the words that I needed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's more important this than your performance. For yeah. sure, you need to be with good performance in your 100%. But the big, the big challenge was arriving in kilometer 90 and have the same force, the same, I don't know, the feelings, the good feelings. And... I had it in, in UTMB with my family, so it was amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. And and going back to kind of what you were just saying with putting the pressure on the competition, mm -hmm. right? Like, I think you had almost a 20-minute lead as early as like the Col de Bonneau, which mm -hmm. is only maybe 50 kilometers in, into the race. So early in the race, you had like a very sizable advantage. Obviously, you were pushing a very hard effort. Were you scared at all? Like, or because you obviously would have been getting some sort of feedback when you see people out uh, or at the checkpoints, you know, hey, pal, you're 20 minutes ahead. It's very early in the race. Yeah. Did, did you have, were people giving you that feedback and how did it Im impact your, your psychology during the yeah, event? Yeah, I gave these feedbacks yeah. every checkpoint and I knew that I had a big advantage and kilometer by kilometer, I had more minutes. Mm -hmm. So maybe I could think, Pau, you are going too fast and maybe you will explode mm -hmm. in kilometer 90, for example. But I had my timings. So I was following, following my timings. Mm -hmm. I went two times in, in the tour of UTMB to uh -huh. run. So I knew what timings I needed to do in checkpoint by checkpoint. So I started in Chamonix. I went to Le Juge and I knew that I needed to do 42 minutes. Yeah, okay. When I arrived to Le Juge, I passed the checkpoint. I looked my watch. 42. 42. I'm in the timing. <laughs> then I went to Saint Gervais, one hour 36, and one hour 36. And I was running like this. And I, I was not focusing my yeah, my attention in the other athletes. Mm -hmm. So I was running with this. And then I arrived in Chamonix with my timing. 13 minutes more than my timing because we did a little bit looping in one part of the of the of the road, but yeah, I was following my timing. <laughs> That's amazing. So you you were taking the splits that you ran in your your training tours around the mountain yeah. and implementing those into your yeah. Your I, race. I looked the timings of I I, I say it because it, yeah. it's true. Yeah. I looked the timings of Francois Dain. Yeah. When he won me in 2017, yeah. I finished six, and I looked the timings of Francois. I take it and I went to. Mm -hmm. to Mont Blanc uh, to practice uh, mm -hmm. in the tour and I went with Zach Miller with Marcin 
with uh, Hawks, mm -hmm. Scotty Hawker. So I take uh, some some athletes. I invite them to mm -hmm. to to the tour, and we did two loops. And it was really useful for me because I I could um, analysis the other athletes, mm -hmm. look if Jack Miller ran faster in in uphills yeah. or in downhills, study a little bit my competence, mm -hmm. and then in the race I knew that what kind of athletes were competing with me. Yeah. And you could sort of push each other a yeah. little bit in the training yeah. as well. Yeah. I think that's a, an, another really good illustration of just sort of like being a total professional in the sport of, you know, leaving no stone unturned in, in training, but also training in the right environment with the right people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, these people are also going to be your competition on race day. And then still always thinking like, okay, what could my advantage be over somebody like Zach Miller, mm -hmm. you know, like if you see him, like maybe you're a stronger climber and then it, on race day, you know, you have that sort of confidence or just like subtle knowledge inside you. It's just, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. So also in the race, going over Grand Colferet, I think you had about a 25 minute lead at that point. And then at the next checkpoint, uh, as we were following along, mm -hmm. was La Folie. Xavier was in second. And at La Folie, he cut the gap down to like 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have that awareness that he had closed a decent amount of time in, in a very, it was only in 20, 20 Ks, he, mm -hmm. he made up 10 minutes. Yeah. What, yeah. what happened there? Were yeah. you having a bad, bad moment there? <laughs> in all races, I have one moment yeah. that I lost my my force yeah it's in english my force no sure yeah, yeah. so i lost my force and it, it happens in in grand colferret i arrived to the top and i started to go down go down to um to la folie and pff, i didn't eat good i didn't drink i drink and i arrived in, in la folie without force and i knew that xavier was running fast uh, but i had 15 minutes so I stopped in La Folie. I remember that uh, I ate too much uh, cheese because I was really hungry. <laughs> and I, I thought, okay, I'm going to eat. And then I start again the second race because for me it's one big point is La Folie. is yeah. 115 kilometers, 110. Yeah. So it left maybe 60 kilometers more. So I, I remember that I thought, okay, stop, eat, and try to recover the minutes that you lost. Yeah. Interesting. So you did have the awareness that mm -hmm. he had closed the gap yeah. because then between La Folie and Champelac, you got all 10 minutes back. Yeah. And, and for me, as I was watching, I was like, oh shit, like Xavier is of, co of course like a three-time champion. Like he knows how to run the tour mm -hmm. and, you know, for you taking such an aggressive strategy from the start of the race, it was sort of like, doing the math in my head, like, okay, it's 15 minutes now. We still have pretty much the hardest part of the course ahead. Xavier is a three-time champion. Like, this is going to be close. Yeah. And then at the next checkpoint, it was 25 minutes again, and then you built your lead up to, I don't what was it, 40 or 45 minutes yeah, at the end? Yeah. yeah, and this is, like I said in the, in the start of this conversation, that I had the day. So maybe another yeah. race, if you lost 10 minutes in 20 kilometers, maybe you will lose 10 minutes more in 10 kilometers. Yeah. So it was a critical point for me in the race, but yeah, uh, fortunately for me, 
finally I could recover the timing, but it was a critical point. Next up is Caitlin Gerben, the ultra running phenomenon, in a conversation we recorded just after her victory at Trans Gran Canaria back in March of 2020, where she's talking about how she cultivated belief in herself in the last few years as a competitor in the sport. You know, I can totally appreciate you sort of like wanting to balance your your competitive goals versus, you know, the elements that you're facing on a particular day, understanding that you're kind of competing against the island rather than the other women in the field. But to kind of press you a little bit on that sort of like mindset thing and racing against a field of this caliber, which was definitely more competitive than the 2019 race and definitely more competitive than the men's race this year. Um, how did that impact your sort of strategy or expectations of yourself? Like, are you somebody who innately kind of has that confidence of like, I, I can race on the level of these women. I am capable of this type of victory. Or are you the kind of person who uh, maybe doesn't have that type of self-belief? Uh, that's a really good question. I think building that confidence is something that I've been trying to do throughout my years of, of racing more competitively. Um, I don't think it really comes naturally because I think there's also like, at least for me, been a lot of imposter syndrome kind of built into myself standing on starting lines against some of the women that I I've been on. And I think some of the first places where I was really experiencing that was at Western States. And maybe that's some stuff we can talk about later, but, um, yeah, I, the the confidence has has definitely not always been there, but you know, I think I went into this particular race again knowing that knowing the time that I could run on it when I had a bad day. Um and even though the competition was was faster, I just knew that I was prepared to run hard and race fast and race the course. And I think I actually was really um, energized and excited by all of the competition on the women's side this year um, for a few reasons. One, um, the the race this year decided to make their theme be trail as female. Right. And so I think that is part of the thing that helped recruit so many women. I think they kind of went out of their way to get more elite women in the field. Um, so that was that was just so powerful to like be up on stage before the race with all of these other women and just like, look, I'd be like, wow, this is a really crazy field. And, you know, many I've, I've raced against some of those women before. Um, and most of the time, actually they've all beat me. (laughs) So, um, you know, I, I, I was trying not to think about that too much and just go into the race with my own, um, you know, kind of keeping my own goals in mind. But I think like, Definitely as the race was playing out and I was, you know, kind of seeing where I was at in the field and who I was racing against and when, um, it was actually kind of a a pretty surreal moment because I think you never really, at least for me, like I never really go into a race expecting that I'm going to win or expecting that I'm going to be faster than, than the people I'm racing against. And you just try to do the best you can on that race day and trust your training and your preparation, um, and then just go after it. And so it was, it was pretty cool. And I think it made crossing the finish line in first, just that much more of a powerful experience for me, because it was really like something that I've been 
working towards for a long time and not just for the buildup for this race or um, even the last year since TGC, but standing on starting lines with competitive fields and just really wanting for years to be able to have one of those races where, you know, things come together in that way where I feel like I can have what I'll, you know, what I'll call a Caitlin race and everyone has their own version of what that means. But, um, that was pretty cool. In this clip, we hear from Gary Robbins, the Canadian sensation, about how a prolonged stretch of injury impacted his mental and emotional health and how his early experience with serious injury ended up benefiting him in his career. Basically, that means, though, that you were kind of out of running for like 18 months for the most part uh, with a few stops and starts along the way but serious injury after serious injury Mm -hmm. and still feeling this weight of pressure obligation to be an athlete and to get this Barkley monkey off your back. Like on an emotional level, what was that like for you as you were going through it? Like, and you talked about sort of like, you know, running being kind of like who you are and your identity and this is something that I've been confronted with a lot and something that we've talked a lot about personally mm-hmm. in our, our times hanging out together over the last six months. And I think something that's important for the listeners to, to sort of consider as well is like how these injuries impact our relationship with ourselves uh, before we, we move on to this year's Barkley, which of course so I want to something- talk about. Yeah. And, and like, thanks for cutting me off. Cause I was just starting to rant a little bit there, but <laughs> <laughs> the, so I, I, I love that question because it really hits at the essence of things here where, you know, as long as the promise of being able to run eventually was there, I was okay with whatever time frame that was going to be to get back to it. And what is most meaningful, what I've really under, come to understand in the last 18 months is I don't need to be a runner. I don't need to be an athlete. I need to get outside, to get in the forest, to get on the trails, to get in the mountains. However I go about that is irrelevant. It is a conduit to happiness, to fulfillment, whether it is the bike or the skis or my feet. It doesn't matter to me how I go about it. It's as long as I can go about it. So what what is interesting about that 18 months, if I contrast that, with where we started 11 years ago with the Jones fracture, in a calendar year from late 2010 until late 2011, I was on non-weight-bearing crutches for eight and a half months. I couldn't do anything. And what I ended up doing was just going to a park on a daily basis to lay under a tree, to read a book, to work on being outside and my mental health. And that was a really difficult year of my life where I was, I was broken from everything. Yeah. This 18 months was very different because I didn't wake up in a bad state every day. I didn't have this overwhelming sense of being broken. What I had was I was finding fulfillment in other avenues. I knew I was injured, but I knew it was temporary. And I actually felt like I really enjoyed that 18 months and I enjoyed how different it was. I enjoyed yeah. the, the, the communities that I met, the, the, the riders, the bike clubs, the, the partners I've, I've come, I've, I've gotten to know through these sports, um, has really broadened my horizons and actually made me feel, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for how that's all played out. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I just think it's, it's so interesting and important to talk about the, you know, the, the sort of emotional consequences of these things. And it almost sounds like your history of injury sort of almost made you better at being injured over the course of the 18 months after the, the 2018 Barkley Marathon and that you weren't dealing with these like identity crisis issues as I was going through this past year of like, oh, wait, if I, if I can't run or if I can't do races, you know, am I a total fraud? And in your case, it was an opportunity to actually explore different parts of your personality, get into biking again, which brought you a lot of joy and maybe, um, you know, didn't come with that kind of like emotional baggage as much. Although but to sure your was- point, in 2011, I vividly remember that is exactly the process yeah. I went through is what yeah. you said. And I called it my mortality as a runner. Yeah. So in 2011, I was faced with my mortality as a runner. This Jones fracture is not an easy thing to recover from. And I did have a doctor tell me, you might not be able to run down mountains and technical trails like you once did. And I had to understand and, and I was confronted with my identity, what was meaningful to me. And I went through that 10 years or eight years prior. So I was better equipped with the latest injury yeah. because at that point, in 2011, that was a turning point for me where when I was confronted with that, I realized that I wanted to be a part of ultra running and trail running for my the rest of my life. And I wasn't going to be an elite athlete for the rest of my life. It's a, it's a finite window that we all, and it's different for all of us. And the fact that I'm even still competing at a high level 10 years later is, is like, feels incredible for what, it, what I was going through. But I realized at that time, my way to stay relevant in the scene and to stay connected to people was through race directing. So through that first injury, that's where my race directing career began. And that's where I, how I ended up to where I am today, where I feel incredibly fortunate to be one of a handful of people who truly make their living off of ultra running and trail yeah. running. My, my running, my uh, events company, my coaching business, and yeah. as an athlete, and uh, there aren't a lot of us that can truly say like our existence, our livelihood is tied to this sport. Next up is my physical therapist, Matt Walsh, who single-handedly saved my running career in the depths of an injury spiral. And in this clip, we hear Matt discuss the importance of staying strong as we age as runners. I turned 34 this year, mm. or just a couple weeks ago. You're old, mate. So we started started working together when I was 33. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very much in my sport, feeling like I was still in the middle of my prime, you yeah. know, coming yeah. off what was probably the best season of my career, and then before hurting my ankle. Um, yeah, really feeling like I was coming into my own as an athlete. And then the ankle injury and the really prolonged recovery and the fits and starts of it and probably trying to come back a little bit too quickly initially threw my body out of whack uh, to a very significant degree. But I'm curious if it's typical when you see athletes start to kind of approach their mid-30s to where they have to really emphasize this more. Yeah, I think it it is that way. I think that um, it speaks to a number of things is that maturity in an athlete is knowing better and better mm-hmm. how hard you can push yourself and what will happen when you do that. Like knowing here are the, here are the signs that, you know, they, I was reading a book yesterday and it said, uh, I got so good at living in the desert 
that I could smell water, right? Okay, now, yeah, you can't yeah. literally smell water, yeah. but you can pick up all the cues, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. And, um, and I think that really good athletes can kind of smell the problems coming, right, better and better. So when you hit your 30s and your 40s, you've got to get really good at that. Yeah. And sometimes part of growing up as an athlete is recognizing you've got to be humble mm-hmm. about it. Might, I might not be able to do this all completely on my own anymore. I might not be invincible. Mm-hmm. I might be human. Yeah. And that will come with injuries and that maybe it'll take a village to help me. Mm-hmm. for a period of time and I've got to get my head out of my ass and go, that's okay. Yeah. You know, it's okay to say, I don't know. So. I love that, learning to smell water. And just, <laughs> yeah, just like being so in tune with your your personal environment to mm-hmm. know like what you need help with and yeah. what you're good at and what you're not so good at. And I think it does only come with a certain level of maturity, but also youth gives you a certain level of Immunity, to yeah, strength, yeah. and you get a free ticket. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, is there anything else like specific that you see kind of happen to athletes as they approach their mid thirties and beyond that makes it more important, yeah, or sure. anything else in that line of thinking? Yeah. So I think that two things happen. We used to think that tissue changed fairly dramatically when you started hitting late thirties, early forties. That everything literally kind of dries up. Mm -hmm. You have less volume of fluid in key essential structures and so you end up with the margins of tissues fray a little bit more, they wear a little bit more, they develop a little bit of a spurring on joint surfaces, things like this. And so we took that as like, okay, everything sort of declines at about the fourth decade. But then we started looking at athletes who basically – didn't take that approach of I'm going to back off when I get to my fourth decade. And really what it was about was it was about people were backing off. Uh, They'd stopped doing strengthening. Uh, They'd said, oh, I'm 40, I better be a bit careful. Yeah. Or I've injured myself twice this year. Or, or they never took it seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't clean it up fully. Yeah. So I think there's, there's two sides to it. One is that you've got to keep taking a very disciplined athletic approach to your training. Like you, you – you have to be wise. Yeah. Like I sometimes say to my like 50-year-old, 60-year-old athletes, like act your bloody age. Yeah. Like be smarter. You're not being smart. Like look me in the eye. Tell me you're going to be smart. Right. Smart is you're going to train consistently. Yeah. Or if you have break, <clears throat> you're not going to come back and try and train at the same level. Yeah. Because your body doesn't do that. It's kind of like a leaky bucket. Yeah. And when you're a kid, you could put anything in that bloody bucket. And then now you're a master's athlete. No, you got to put the perfect stuff in the bucket. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're a you particular, you've got to plug the leaks as well. And that's the other side of it, right, is you've got to yeah. plug the leaks. So plugging the leaks means you've got to pay attention to little things. So I try and convince people, as long as they're not worry athletes, because there are a lot of athletes who just worry about everything, and those people you don't want to do this to, to but, but if you've got a confidence athlete who's intentional and kind of focuses in a good way, then you say to them, I want you to have your problem list. I want you to sort of be on the back of your, your training journal. And you just look at it occasionally. You go, okay, have I dealt with my big toe that doesn't bend? Yeah. Or have I just been forgetting about it because it doesn't hurt? No, no, no. Now's the good time to look after it. Uh-huh. When things are good, that's the time to look after the problems. In this next clip, we hear from Tim Brown, the founder and CEO of Allbirds, the sustainable footwear company that took the world by storm in the last few years and is currently valued at $1.6 billion. 
Before Tim was an entrepreneur, he was a pro soccer player in his native New Zealand. And in this clip, he talks about how his athletic career influenced his business life. I want to kind of like riff on something and see if it, you identify with it at all as well. Because like I mentioned, I just came off a, a year of like serious injury. First time in my athletic life that I was hurt. And the year before that, I had the best season of my career, signed all these new contracts. And, you know, when you then get injured, you sort of feel like, shoot, like now I'm not living up to what these people are expecting from me. And like, I'm not delivering on my promise. And in my conversation with Brett, in many conversations with him, he talks about something similar in that when he was putting together his venture fund and sort of exploring this for the first time in his life, he found that the fundraising process was amazing. He, he really enjoyed it. But then once he had successfully raised the fund and it became time to deliver, he then sort of like fell into this mode of self-doubt. And I sort of wonder if you may identify that a little bit as well with, you know, raising $125,000 on Kickstarter right away with basically, you know, no help on your end. And then having that moment of like, oh shit, I actually have to deliver on this now. Uh, does that resonate with you at all? Am I, is there a commonality there that I'm hitting on that, that might be similar again between sport and business? Yeah, I, th I think of course. I think on some, on, on some level, you know, um, everyone, all of us are driven by the idea that we don't want to fail at something. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's obviously sort of influenced by the size of the challenge that you're going after and your ability to execute it. And also and how much you care or how much the actual idea of failing means to you. And I, I, I think in, in some cases, oftentimes, um, you know, an athlete is, is driven by the idea that they don't want to lose, that they want to, they want to win and, and, um, that it probably the idea of losing impacts them more than maybe a normal person. It's a big mm. part of the drive to put yourself through training for so long to improve. So yeah, I, I, I had that. Absolutely. I think it was, um, more than my athletic ability. I think the the driving, um, sort of thing, my competitiveness behind, um, my sport, my sport and the ability to get you know, to be part of what I was a part of. And certainly, you know, it's the same thing in, in business. If, if, if in, in many ways it's kind of worse, but it's, it's sort of, it's not like you have, you have chapters and an off season where you can kind of reset. It's like, it's going all the time. Yeah, yeah. This, this thing, you know, oftentimes people are like, Oh, you know, it must be working long hours and you kind of laugh. Cause that's not, that's the wrong question. It's like this thing embeds six inches in your brain. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and that just, I think at the end of the day, that's just sort of part of this, this that can be taken too far, but there's, there's part of me that, you know, that is, that likes to be uh, tackling something difficult. And is there doubts? Of course. Yeah. Every day. I mean, today, yeah. just like any, any other day. So I think it all becomes about how you manage it. I think the one thing I was able to do and learn through my sporting career is there's like Tim Brown, the person, and then there's Tim Brown, the person that goes and plays sport. And those yeah. two things aren't the same. And you can lose on the weekend and still be a good bloke. And, uh, and, and that took a little while to learn, you know, cause you take it so personally. And, and, um, you know, the idea is that when you're injured, you're failing everyone. And the reality is you just, it's, that's not something you can control. And I think yeah. I got much better at that. And, and I think that the refining that mental model has helped me as an entrepreneur. 
Yeah, totally. And that was a major takeaway from my experience of injury, having been an athlete my whole life and really dealing with injury for the first time in my mid thirties. It was the first moment where I had to sort of decouple my athletic identity from my personal identity. And it was a kind of a big kind of light bulb moment for me. So touching back on Joey again, Joey's Willinger, your business partner. Yeah, just on that. I mean, I I just very quickly, I broke my shoulder and I spent my entire sporting career in some ways preparing to go to the World Cup and the very last warm-up game we played Australia at the MCG big cricket ground in front of I don't know 70 or 80,000 people and I I broke my shoulder and it was like three weeks before the World Cup and uh, you know I ended up going to the the tournament and, and never actually getting on the field and it was heartbreaking and I actually had this moment where I went at the All Blacks camp I was back in New Zealand I just had surgery and the All Blacks are a very famous rugby team and they have a, a very famous actually sports psychologist and I went in and saw him this guy called Gilbert Anoka and um, and I thought it was going to be some sort of complicated process. And all he did is he sat me down and there were people coming in and out of the room. This is like one of the most iconic sporting teams with one of the best records ever. And all he asked me is like, what can you, what can you control and what can you not control? Yeah. And he wrote them down on a whiteboard and he's like, who are the people that, that can influence the bits that you can control? Uh, and you know, how you, you re- communicating with them and are you in touch with them? And, and that was kind of it. It was that simple. And it was sort of a framework for tackling challenge. And, and he's like, all of the stuff you kind of, it's going to be there, you, but you got it. You got to let it go. Cause it's, it's just, it's not, it's not part of the equation here, but these bits are, and, and what are you going to do to tackle them? And, and, um, and, and I just thought, I just thought that that was a refreshing, very, very simple sort of way of tackling some of these things. And oftentimes we're, we spend so much time worrying on the bits that we just can't influence. And Next up is my coach, the one and only Jason Coop, the Mr. Miyagi of ultra running. This was a super fun conversation with a guy who has helped me so, so much in my career. And in this clip, we talk about what we've done well to contribute to a positive coach-athlete relationship over our seven years working together. To get more specific, Coop, what do you think are some of the things that we've done particularly well over the course of our relationship that you think have lent themselves to us having a, a great personal relationship, but also success in a racing context. I want to hear your answers to this afterwards, but <laughs> I want you to go first. Sure. I, I, I honestly think Dylan, the biggest thing is like you're autonomous. Like I, and I, 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 I try to strike this, I, I try to strike this point with our younger coaches and then also with athletes that I work with that I know that I'm going to have like a long-term coach-athlete relationship with is that ultimately it's their running, right? It's your running. It's not my running. I don't put two, one foot in front of the other to make, you know, Dylan run or anything like that. Like you've got to get your butt out the door and do the work and show up to the races. And I can't be there at every single mile to tell you to run faster or slower or anything like that. You know, if anything, during, I mean, you know this, Dylan, you, you, and I know you've expressed this to me before, like you absolutely, you know, treasure the fact that I'll go to races and, you know, show a face and things like that. But the reality is, is I'm very not, I'm not very functional at those. Like I just let y'all do your thing. Like you're autonomous. But that's intentional, right? And so I think the biggest thing, especially for you being an elite athlete, is that over the course of years, you can come to the table and say, okay, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to execute it. Coop, how are you going to help me? Versus 
what, you know, what special formula of training are you going to put together to make me awesome? Like, no, that's not the way it works. It's not me making you awesome. It's you being awesome and me just help kind of guiding the ship here and there. Yeah. That above everything else, like the autonomy that, that, that you started to have maybe about four years ago, probably Western States, if we want to go over that story was Mm -hmm. the the biggest catalyst with that. Um, I, I would say that that's the thing that, that collaboratively we've done, we've done the best is that moving you from an athlete that, as I mentioned at the onset of this podcast is kind of a deer in headlights to one where you're very, you're very deliberate in where you want to go. You know, the races that you want to do, you know, how you want to tackle those performances. And even if we drill it down into, to coaching and training, it's like, Coop, this is, this is what I feel I need to do, you know, next week and the week after and the week after that. Is that correct? I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty close. Let's maybe change this like little one thing here, but yeah, you got it. Yeah, no, it's funny. Um, I was thinking about this the other day too, of like, you know, usually at the beginning of a training block, you know, once you put the first week up in training peaks, I can probably guess with like 80% accuracy what the next three or four or five weeks are going to look like. And, um, yeah, I, I think I'm somebody who also appreciates simplicity and I appreciate that the small things that you do, like I much prefer to gauge my, uh, my training on time rather than miles and pace and things like that. And I know there's other people who have different preferences in that, in that regard, but I think just on a personal level, that's helped us to have a good relationship. That's just those small things. But, um, you know, as it relates to, you know, things that you've sort of brought into my career that I think have been enormously helpful and enormously valuable is just like this consistent, like churn of, of work over the course of the years, but without much excess at all. And the consistency that we've had has just been pretty remarkable. And that really the only thing that's put me out as, you know, serious, acute injury, never had any kind of like overtraining or, uh, overuse injury, anything like that. And I went back and looked at my Strava data and it's pretty remarkable if you look back at it because like from 2014 to 2017, uh, or 2018, so four or five years there, all of my training is within like 50 to a hundred miles a year. Like I put in almost exactly the same amount of work every year for like four or five years in a row. And, you know, it's not to say that every workout's the same, every training block's the same. Of course, every race is different and every approach to every race is different, but just that like constant, like, you know, steady churn without excess and without, you know, um, erring on not doing too little. Um, yeah, I think it's just been like, I don't know that just, I don't know if you've ever like intentionally, you know, sort of capped the workload, but it's pretty remarkable when you look at it, just like how similar the numbers are all those years in a row. Well, that I can tell you unequivocally 100% that is deliberate. Yeah. And the reason is because you see the the first few years that we are working together, there were moderate increases in volume and the volume of intensity over those years. But one of the things we know from the research and also from just practice with athletes is that 
athletes are going to hit some sort of maximum level of workload that they can tolerate, but they will still improve over the course of years, even at that maximum tolerable load. And you were never at your maximum tolerable load. I always take a little, like a little bit off the top, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is the amount of workload is not proportionally related to the amount of improvement that you can get. And I knew that right from the get go, I knew that, okay, you know, if I were to map this out, you know, seven years, which that's not an exercise because I didn't know we're going to have this conversation seven years from now. If I were to map this thing out seven years from now, first few years, there'd be some increase in, you know, in training and the athlete's going to get better and it's not going to be because of me. It's just going to be because, you know, everything's new. And then after that, we're going to keep things stable, but the athlete can still improve. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's what we see time and time again with long-term coach athlete relationships is that you don't have to necessarily increase the workload, the total workload as, as you're looking at it through any one year and the athlete can still get better, even just, even despite that lack of lack of increase. And there's a whole host of reasons that that, uh, that that occurs. This next clip comes from the episode with Portland's own Tyler Green, after we had both gone after and broke the Wonderland Trail FKT in very quick succession in August of this year. In this clip, we talk about what makes Tyler so fricking good at FKTs. Anyway, in, in retrospect, what do you think you did really well and what do you think you could have done better? Uh, I think that new understanding of like practicing breath and being present and like to bring it back to that big climb that we talk about before uh, sunrise, like there were times when I, I only felt bad when I was like thinking about the entire climb and how much further I had to go. And when I got back to where I was right then, I was like, no, it's not, I don't actually feel that bad. Yeah. And that's a really cool understanding that I've never had before. And I think that's something that I can carry on into, you know, the races that we're going to do in yeah. the future. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the big lesson. Did you ask what I could do? better too what do you think you did well what do you you think you could do better um and then of course i mean this is all within my mind palace of like i need to figure out how to not have this negative Mm self-talk and want to be done and just just like be Mm. in this moment because i was injured like at the start of the summer and didn't think that i was going to even be doing this at all so why can't i get into my head that this is like this immense privilege and beautiful thing that I'm doing, even when it's really hard. Fuck yeah. And I, I got to figure that out, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we could all do better yeah. at that. But I mean, it, it's such a good point, man. It's just so great. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to, to nitpick, but also like it's, it's tough to, I mean, with a performance like that, it's tough to find like real, you know, flaws that would have taken like margins of time off, right? Mm-hmm. Like you did all that the little stuff it seems like was super dialed right yeah. like in retrospect for me you yeah know, what's walking yours? through the aid stations would have been super smart mm-hmm. and then you know having i wish i would have made more of an effort to get people to run with yeah me. yeah because he's seen did a couple miles like out of Moich. but he's mostly filming right. he's not necessarily like taking yeah, care he's not, yeah not really filling up or exactly and then but caitlin was super helpful in yeah. that last section not that I was, you know, like I was 
pissing and moaning and you know being a crybaby, but mm. she was a she was definitely a, a helpful presence and influence for those last few miles. So yeah, again, like I'm proud of my effort too. You know, it was a it was the best I could have done, and uh, yeah. you know that's no yeah like you learn from them, you learn from them all. So it's good. Um, I still have a couple more questions. We've been going for a while. Yeah, sure. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more. You're really fucking good at FKTs. Like, what do you think? Like, so just to reiterate, you have the FKTs now around Mount hood, Mount St. Helens and Mount Rainier, Mm -hmm. which is so freaking cool. Like what an awesome, at least for a few days, career (laughs) highlight. But I mean, yeah, I think, you know, definitely hood and Rainier are safe. I think for a while, um, who knows? I mean, everybody's right. gone for FKTs, so who knows? St. Helens, you could probably go a little mm-hmm. bit quicker. I mean, if we're being, being honest, but, um, but you're like, you're uniquely good, I think at FKTs. Yeah. And you said earlier, like that it took you a while to like, maybe want to do FKTs and definitely want to race. What do you think it is about? Like, do you think there's a, you have like a personal characteristic or part of your psychology that makes you like good at these, like these like personal time trials. I don't know. I mean, I think the part of it is like, how do you game it? Okay. Like this is the route. Like, what do you do? And, and actually for Timberline, like, I think that I probably get some flack because I started at a low point where most people start at the, at the Timberline Lodge. But it's within the rules. Yeah. Yeah, It's within the rules. But I think some people are like, well, you should start at Timberline Lodge. You have these final two climbs rather than getting the climbs out and at the beginning. So, but I think in that sense, like I'm looking at like, well, what, what angles can I take to make this a little bit faster? Yeah knowing that I don't have much margin for error and knowing that the line between success and failure is pretty darn stark. And I think that's the other thing that like a lot of what I was going through having seen your 1658 was like, I'm going to run 1705 and it's going to be so cool (laughs) (laughs) because a few days ago would have been so impressive. And and then getting back to like my intrinsic reasons for doing this and getting back into like, I want to just figure out how far I can go and how fast I can go. And that's, that's the win in itself. Um, But there is that, there is that feeling of, you know, here's the thing. I, I've had so many second places in my life Mm -hmm. and I started racing cross country in, in second grade and in like fourth or fifth grade, every single race that I ran in cross country, I was second place. I didn't win a race until like eighth grade, I think. And of course, like, I mean, it's, it's a privilege to win a race at all. Like a lot of people don't have that experience. So I don't want to like down downplay that or like feel like I'm some sort of victim in that sense. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it's something about head to head racing. And I think that's something that you're like super, super good at. It's just like, that person's in front of me, I'm going to go take them down. That's what I was getting at. Like, yeah. I, I feel like I'm, there's something about the FKT that like, I don't know, like I, I don't respond hmm. well mm-hmm. or like, I don't know, maybe like it's a, you know, a psychological thing, a motivation thing. I just, I feel like I perform better yeah. in a racing context, you know? And so that's what I'm getting at is like, I want to learn how to get better at FKTs from the, from and the I, volcano and it, champ. it must be that you have to start out well. Yeah. <laughs> like that you just don't have 
you don't have the time to dilly dally at any point. And I think that that was like probably what you invited me into from Longmire to Mowich Lake was like, I was thinking like, I got to take that plate, that spot conservative conservatively. And you like, because you hammered or maybe not, I mean, it was like relatively comfortable for you, but that that was like a kick in the pants for me that like, no, you got to be on the entire time. Yeah. Like there's no point where you're, where you're backing down. Okay, this next one is from my conversation with pro ultra runner Jason Schlarb, one of the most popular episodes of the year. And in this clip, Jason gives an honest glimpse into a rough patch he endured in his personal life and how he grew from that experience. I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, before we get to the good stuff here of your recent victory. Um, you've been really open on, on social media about just like, it seemed that maybe after UTMB or late last year, early this year, you kind of fell into a little bit of a, a personal hole. And, and I definitely had a similar experience myself last year in, in 2019. And I wanted to see if you wanted to expand on that at all, you know, to whatever extent you're comfortable, you know, with whatever, whatever details you're comfortable with. Uh, maybe what, what was tough for you and, uh, you know, do you feel like you've gotten through it and, and what have you learned? Yeah. How I would uh, kind of explain my my journey, let's call it the journey uh, over this last year, is um, I'm a really intense guy. Uh, I've got a really addictive personality. Um, I'm, I'm really, really uh, a lot of energy. And, you know, I get that hereditarily. I get that um, from, from, from my upbringing. Um, I get that from some, some imbalances in, in my, like, uh, I, I don't know, hormonal brain kind of stuff. I've got, I, I deal with a lot of anxiety. And uh, it, it, it has enabled me to thrive in a lot of different environments. Mm. Um, one of those environments was uh, being a military officer. Uh, you know, and, and just going and pushing and, uh, you know, having no compromise and, and just, just, just having that kind of mentality. And the other obvious one is, is ultra marathon, you know, just, I don't quit and I, I'm, I'm a stubborn dude. And I just go from second to second, pushing, pushing, pushing. And, um, that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I have a lot of pride for that. But, uh, you know, there's a really, really dark side to that. Mm. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of uh, issues that I've finally, in a ripe age of now 42, kind of decided to, to show up and confront. And, um, you know, there's, there's some control stuff there, too. Um, just, just having that. And, that, you know, that shows up in relationship as well. You know, mm. people uh, love to be around that energy. And I've had amazing, amazing partners. Um, you know, I've been married and divorced. And, uh, you know, I was, I, I was uh, with Meredith. And, uh, you know, I finally kind of came to a point where it all came crashing down. Mm. You know, and, and I, I, there, there's, there's a lot more details there, but we could do like a, a three-week series on this stuff, <laughs> man. But it's uh, basically, I, 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 I was, um, you know, put in a position where I, you know, got left and, uh, I needed to confront, you know, what's going on and through some therapy 
and uh, through some some realization that it had happened. And it's one thing to to know something; it's another thing to act on it. It's another thing to change. It's another thing to live. Um, you know, and I I knew these things, and I had seen it through 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 my father and generations before. Um, but I kind of got put into the position of like, okay, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in a bad place and, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of this age and here's, here's my life and what the hell's going on. Mm. And, uh, you know, had, I had to figure out what, what was, what was wrong. And I, I, I had an idea, but then, like I said, it's one thing to know versus you know, experience and really sit with that. And so I started to work on, um, you know, understanding different kind of aspects of my my personality and my tendencies with that control, with that anxiety, and uh, lo and behold, we have this COVID nineteen thing happen, mm. and uh, I'm here at my cabin, and I'm not traveling internationally. I'm not getting that you know that work that I'm normally getting, and uh, you know I'm at home, and it kind of forced me to to face this shit, mm. and you know. For, day to day, week to week, month to month, you know, I, I started to talk to my best friends, you know, I started to talk to my family, you know, I, I, I continue to, to, to talk and, and work with Meredith and, and see some counselors. And I, I, I finally confronted and I was able to actually relax a little bit and be happy. Mm-hmm. And that sounds, that sounds really broad, and basic and general. Yeah. But happy is something that I hadn't really known besides, you know, like being successful. And I don't think those two things are the same. And happiness and being able to appreciate the moment. Mm. And I, I, all of a sudden, you know, I had a a really, 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 really tough day on, you know, in this period that I'm describing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I just was just so pissed off and so angry and so disappointed and I had regret and I had shame and all these different things and things weren't going in my life, how they were supposed to. And I just kind of snapped. I woke up and I looked around and the weird thing was that the, the thing that I noticed was that the world in all of this chaos in my mind and my heart and in everybody else's, you know, dealing with, 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 with what's been happening this year, the, the, the trees and the forest and this river that I was driving along looked the exact same as it did last year before all this shit happened. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I, it made me look inside and say, hey, what do I have? Mm. right now yeah. you know and it, it helped me realize okay i have a son felix i have my health i have friends i have family i have a vehicle i've got this profession where i'm a, a guy that gets to travel around the world and run and and you know influence you know our sport and our, our world in that way shit i should be happy yeah and i and 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 i i just kind of let go of a lot of that, you know, and it, you know, it didn't last forever, never will. Mm-hmm. But that moment, I came to grips with, you know, really being able to appreciate the moment. And then it kind of seeped into the rest of my life with with not trying to force my agenda, force my goals, force those kind of things. And I, I just I've just had a lot of growing up finally. This next one is from English ultra runner Tom Evans, someone who I've become a big, big fan of. And in this clip, we hear a bit about Tom's high-performing, super professional approach to ultra running. 
And, yeah. you know, as an outside observer and, you know, somebody who, who doesn't know you super well, but, you know, has followed your career, you strike me as somebody who's like seriously like excellence focused. And you touched on this a little bit in talking about the team that you have around you and the coaching and the massage. And it sounds like you're, you're going to be getting a massage here pretty soon. And you have this like air of professionalism about you. And I think you represent in a lot of ways, kind of the future of the sport in, in that regard. And, uh, you know, I've always sort of like tried to do the little things super well in my career as well. And, um, I think there's just so much value in someone like you kind of, um, having that, that like public facing feeling of professionalism in our sport. And I'm just curious where that kind of, um, where like, do you set super high standards for yourself? Are you like super excellence focused and, and where does that come from in your personality? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting. Like, I think there is always, and I, I guess it's something I've carried over from being in the military. Like, the military is split up into different small teams and small organizations that there are people in your team who are very good, but there is probably someone else somewhere who is better at doing something than you are. So, for me, I was in the infantry. If I needed to fix a vehicle, I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to let the experts do it. And I guess that's sort of kind of the role that I've sort of taken as, a, as the athlete. Yes, I've got to do the running bit of it. But, and I want to be, I, I, at the end of the day, I, I left a really good career in the military. I want to be as good in this sport as I can. And I've set myself that challenge and those goals of, and, I, and coming late into the sport, it's kind of like you, like, I don't yeah. know still now. Like, I've only been running for, two and a half, three years, um, which I like, I'm really, I'm like, and I'm still really excited about it. Like I'm still, I'm doing workouts now for the first time. Like I've never done a workout session with a floating before. Yeah. I did that my first one, maybe eight weeks ago. And I was like, Oh my God, this is a game. Ch- How have I never done <laughs> this? is ultra marathon training here. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's like, and I'm still getting so excited about these things, but I'm not, like I'm no coaching expert. I I'm interested in coaching and I've done some research, but there are people who are better suited to doing that. And same with nutrition and same with recovery protocols. And like you wouldn't, yeah, if you were a, if you were an accountant, you wouldn't be fixing your car and your mechanic wouldn't be, or well, hopefully is doing his tax, but he might get you to help him with his tax because yeah. that's the expert in the field and they're going to know you can't be the best at everything. And running is, is I see it as the, the easy bit. So having that like really close core team around you, people who genuinely want the best for you mm. has been, yeah, has been key. And I, I guess I looked at, I looked at other sports and yes, trail running is a, it's, it, it is turning more and more professional, but I looked at, I looked at something, I looked at the marathon and I was like, why, why are marathoners only racing two, maybe three races a year? Whereas you'll see some ultra athletes who are racing eight, 12 times a year. And I see athletes like that racing 1200 Ks a year. Yeah. I'm like, how on earth are you doing that? Like I, there's no way I could perform 
at my or as good as I want to. Yeah. If I did it so much, like I want to be in this sport for the long run. And I think yeah. take someone like in the in the last couple of years, you take someone like Killian who has gone from racing every other weekend to now being like, actually, I'm just gonna I'm gonna train really hard for a race, smash a race, mm-hmm. take a bit of time off, enjoy life, and then go back into it. And yeah. it's, it's what a marathoner would do. And it's I sort of looked at the performances and how far performance had come with the marathon in the last five, 10 years and seeing the professionalism and seeing how everything has evolved there. And I guess trying to take that into, into trail running that yes, the sport isn't professional, mm-hmm. but it has professionalized so much in the last, yeah. in the last years. like there's now you go to certain races, there'll be appearance fees, yeah. which five years ago, that would have been a, you unheard you, of. Yeah. You want what? Yeah. Uh, so I think the sport is going there. Like I kind of see it as the sport is where like Ironman triathlon was five, 10 years ago, but I think it will be where Ironman triathlon is in the next couple of years. Like I Me think too. if you're a, if you're a two fourteen marathoner, that's really quick, but it's not quick enough to do anything with. Um, yeah. You're not going to the world championships. You're not going to the Olympics you're not going to the Commonwealth games. You're kind of, and you're not going to finish top 10 in any majors. Yeah. You're like, well, kind of why would you do it? And I think if you can translate and you can transfer that onto the trails, which is definitely isn't a given because there are lots of very quick marathoners who crumble on the trails. But I think if you can transition it, it's going to push the sport on so much and they'll take their professionalism from NCAAs and working in a sort of elite, track an elite road club and then bring that onto the trails which i think will be that will then give trail running the next step forward um and people do it in a different way like i've recently i've been doing more like cross country and road running stuff which is probably a little bit more american style compared to european whereas you compare an athlete like killian Mm -hmm. killian trains for trail running by doing mountaineering by skiing by climbing yeah to get him really fit for the trails. Whereas that's not me. Like I train 5k half marathon cross country yeah. to get fit for the trails. So I think there is such the European and American scene is so different yet. The overall goal is you still it's want to win. Yeah. Like the goal is the same, but yeah. the way of getting there is so different. And I think that's, there's two different, completely model, two different, two completely different models. Yeah. But, to the same goals, which I think is is super exciting, and I think the sport will continue to development to develop, and I think we'll just see kind of like with the marathon, we'll see sort of performances sort of just getting lower and lower and lower, and in in twenty years time, like Jim's Western States record, I think it will always be amazing, but it's just going to get it's people are just going to sort of knock away at it, knock away at it, knock away yeah. at it. In twenty years time, it's going to be it's it's really exciting. I think that's the way that. That's the way that the sport the sport is going, and I think we'll continue to do so. This next clip comes from the episode with my friend Stephanie Howe, talking about how injury can impact our emotional health, but also the other way around, how maybe our internal life can sometimes dictate our physical health. I'm curious though, like, you know, when we think about our lives, you know, as athletes, right? Like, 
both like your prefer your personal life and your athletic life were sort of crumbling at the same time. Right. How did that impact your like feeling of yourself? And like, how did that impact sort of like your identity of who Stephanie Howe was, you know, you didn't have this Mm -hmm. anchoring of your relationship that you'd had for a long time. And at the same time, you, you didn't have the anchoring of like, Hey, I'm a great athlete capable of doing these amazing things. How did it change the way you were thinking about yourself and how did that hurt? <laughs> you know, cause that's yeah. sort of how I felt. It, it's the worst because, you know, you, you just feel like you have nothing. And yeah, I, I mean, I was in a deep, dark hole and uh, you know, I, because you, the thing that makes you, you know, at least when you have like one or the other, you can kind of lean on that or just like put more energy and focus. But when both crumble at the same time, you're kind of left with like, wow, like, mm-hmm. who am I? Right. Why am I here? <laughs> um, I, I will say I, I had a good therapist that I saw on a regular basis who really helped me talk through things. I did a lot of work with her um, and it was painful, but it was so necessary. Mm. And I just think leaning into people that love you at that time. And, you know, a, a lot of times we're kind of ashamed to to share that we're weak. Like I definitely am. I put up a tough front of like, you know, I've got, I've got everything together and I'm always going to be okay. But I just kind of, I didn't have the capacity to have that front. And so I, I crumbled in front of people mm-hmm. and I think just feeling that vulnerability allowed me to to let these people help me to bring me up, and that included teammates. You saw me yeah. like this, yeah. <laughs> um, my family, my friends, um, even strangers I didn't know. Like you know, I've just break down, and people can be really kind. Yeah. And um, so I think just gradually I dug myself out of that hole and. You know, it wasn't my first injury, thankfully. So I had some tools I had developed from the past of just knowing like, okay, the body does heal, you adapt and things will get better. So I had, you know, as I was able to start healing, start doing things like move my body a bit or just trust that it would get better. But yeah, it's, it's a rough thing to have that happen. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, for me, I, I see this, these two things so intertwined of like, you know, in my experience with my like, you know, personal meltdown last year, it was like the, the sort of like sadness that I was feeling or like the kind of depression for lack of a better word preceded my health issues. Right. And so yeah. now like looking back at it with some perspective, I really don't think that's a coincidence. And and just to, you know, provide some context, like I really didn't have experience being injured as somebody who's been an athlete my whole life. I've just always been really lucky with my health. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, didn't have those tools that you just talked about of like learning from previous injuries. And so for me, like I had this like sadness and then like all of a sudden my body just started failing, like for the first time in my life, of course, like you get older, you start to maybe not recover as well, or you might be more susceptible to injuries. But like, for me, it really didn't feel like a, um, like a coincidence, like my toxic Mm -hmm. internal environment, like maybe left me more vulnerable to these physical injuries. Does that resonate with you at all? Or like, have you ever noticed a pattern with that in your own experience as an athlete? 
Absolutely. Work, right? Yeah. I think it's all connected. Even if it's not a direct correlation, the, the body's connected, mind, body, mm-hmm. um, health, wellness. It's, you can't really separate them out. And I, I'm convinced that not healing from my injuries had something to do with the state that I was in for mm-hmm. many years. And, and I think, especially when it comes to illness, you know, when, when you're, when you're an athlete and you're pushing your body that hard, and then you have all of these other issues, like, you know, your body's going to have to fight really hard to stay healthy. And so, yeah, I, I think that's something we overlook as runners, but it's, you know, stress can really do a lot to us. This next clip comes from my conversation with my friend Markel Taylor, who I met while he was serving a life sentence in San Quentin State Prison in Northern California. This clip is about how Markel's running was inspired by a friend who took his own life due to the stresses of incarceration. So you were originally inspired to join the club because one of your friends on the inside had committed suicide. Can you tell the listeners about that story? Uh, yes. Um, I'm going to say I got to San Quentin in 2011 and 12, 13, 14, 15. So in 2015 was my first board hearing. And that would have been a total of 15 years before going to the board, or at least being able to uh, be granted suitability for parole. So you'd serve the 15 years of your 15 to life sentence? Uh, In 2015, I did. Right. But in 2011 is when I first got to San Quentin. Mm -hmm. So between that time is when, you know, when I first got to San Quentin, I met a lot of wonderful, amazing people who have changed their lives for the better, who were probably like vicious people that would have probably cut my throat or stabbed me if, when they first got to prison. But mm-hmm. these people were a little bit older, they were more mature. And so I would call it that they gave me the game and they laced me inside the prison. And this was one guy in particular that I really was fond of and I took a liking to because even those brief moments when I was down and out, he would say, you know, just hang in there. Everything will be all right, man. It's, you know, it's not the end of the world. At least you're here on earth and you're a survivor. You're surviving. And, you know, he would always give me these words of encouragement and not be judgmental and not look down on me. So he was him and a couple of other guys were like guys that I gravitated to because mm-hmm. they kind of had the like mind and heart and spirit like I did. So I kind of like, I kind of hung out with these guys. They were older than I was. and he was getting ready to go to the board. And this, I think I might, I'm going to say probably in 2014. And by that time, he had already been to the board like five or six times. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say five. And so when he went, he got denied. And it broke him. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, Unfortunately, it was still tough and it was very, very hard for people to get out. And so he didn't work this. He'd been working in the PIA industry, building furniture, doing all these wonderful things, mattresses. And all. He used to work in the mattress factory. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he put in all his work, so to speak, as far as helping people in the community, helping other brothers, 
inside the prison in these self-help groups, being a motivational speaker, being a big brother, you know, doing all these wonderful, amazing things. And then he goes to the board and they deny him mm. and it hurt him. So he committed suicide, mm. actually. He killed himself because he was tired and he gave up. And that hurt me that he gave up because... Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I can't judge nobody and I don't know what he's been going through, but I know he was just tired of fighting. Yeah. And so I just, I didn't want to be tired of fighting. I mean, mm-hmm. even though it hurt me that he did that. And it was times that I have thought that, but I was just too coward enough to even take my own life. But there were times I've thought about that, but never tried it. Yeah. And I'm like, man, because you don't really have hope and, and the way they've been doing that and if you only see two people get out every five or six years or so, that's not enough people. It's overcrowded. There's people that's been doing their their best to be right and do the right things, and they're still being judged on something they did like 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they're still getting these denials. And a lot of people gave up. A lot of people was committing suicide. And yeah. um, so he so, was one of the ones that killed himself. So, so that's did- when... How did he inspire you to get in, involved with the Thousand Mile, Mile Club? Now, that's the thing. He didn't get me inspired to join the Thousand Mile Club. He the one that caused me to start running again. Yeah. He, he, he woke up, you know how they say you, walk, you, you wake a sleeping giant? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that he woke me up to start, it, to start running and, and just start breaking people records in the Thousand Mile Club. No. Yeah. He... By him committing suicide, I needed an outlet. Yeah. I needed something that was more than just my spiritual religion and exercise and -hmm. self-help groups because I needed something more than that. And I felt like even though that was there, it still didn't help me from what I was feeling for him and my inadequacies or my self-doubt and self-worth at the time. Mm-hmm. especially when this guy who was doing some amazing work get yeah. denied. Mm-hmm. And to me at that time, his last name was Garcia. So I thought he might've been Spanish, but he was, he looked white to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking if he don't have action, uh, me being black, I know I'm not getting out. Yeah. So I just want to prepare myself for where I don't end up feeling like he did if I get rejected. Man. So I started running on my own. This next clip is from Rachel Drake, a rising star in the sport of trail and ultra running, uh, where we talk a bit about her career and her professional life. Let's go into that a little bit, because I know this is something that's really important, something that sort of uh, takes up a lot of your time, especially right now. So tell us what you do professionally, what your focus is, and, and sort of how that shapes you. Yeah, so at the University of Minnesota, I studied biochemistry and really just fell in love with science and did a couple research projects um, at the University of Oregon and the University of Washington. So was exposed to the Pacific Northwest through those experiences. Um, And then, yeah, decided to pursue an MD-PhD dual degree and have been in Portland since 2014. So six years and um, yeah, so the way that works is it's two years of medical school, so you do all the classroom didactic training and then 
uh, PhD. So I've been in the PhD portion for five years now, and I'm, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a long time. But it's, I'm what a commitment! That's amazing. Yeah, well, you you can't see it as as being in school. I'm really just trying to see it as my job is to learn, mm-hmm. um, because I'm you know if you if you zoom out, it's like wait, you're not going to have a real job until you're 40 years old. Right. But I'm just telling people that I'm a professional student. Professional learner. Yes, exactly. So if you look at it that way, it's actually quite fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so for my PhD, I'm studying fat metabolism in the heart. So um, really interested in how the heart transitions from carbohydrates, so glucose and lactate metabolism in utero to fat metabolism after they're born. Um, and how babies that are uh, are growth restricted or born small, how their metabolism is stunted, and mm-hmm. whether there's anything we can do to improve their nutrition um, and hopefully get them on a better track. Because fun fact, well, it's not super fun, but um, babies that are born small are more likely to have heart disease when they're adults. So I think there's a lot that can be done. Um, in the immediate postnatal period to try to improve that, that outcome. That's so amazing, you know, <laughs> that you get to kind of devote your life towards these huge, like, hum- human problems. And in preparation for our conversation, I went to your guys' website, you know, the Ultraside Hustle. <laughs> oh. and, and I watched the video of the, um, I, I don't know if he's your instructor oh, or the head mentor. of the, your mentor, um, yeah. that's about this subject matter of nutrition and, and epigenetics. Do you want to talk about that a little sure. bit more? Because I think that is really fascinating and something that I abs- I had no idea about, about how the size of the infant can sometimes impact the long-term health and about how, you know, nutrition and metabolism is sort of also genetic and, and the nutrition of our mothers and grandmothers might Absolutely. impact that. Talk about that a bit. Yeah. yeah. I love that you watched that video. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, everyone should watch that. So there's this whole field of research called the developmental origins of disease. So it's basically how your uh, development in utero programs you for your health as an adult. So what your mom ate, what your grandma ate, um, will impact the way that your body interacts with the world. So like, uh, for example, the, the egg that made you was made in your mother when your mother was in your grandmother's womb. Wow. <laughs> yeah, let that set in. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot of research that's been done. Um, David Barker is one of the founding fathers of that mm-hmm. that field, and you can look him up as well. And um, it really started with more uh, epidemiological studies, just noting observations of um, infants that were born small or born too early, having these predispositions to disease in adulthood. Mm. And now there's um, more of a push for looking at the mechanism behind that. So basic science research to try and explain that. And I think that's what you were getting at with Mm -hmm. the epigenetics. Mm -hmm. So epigenetics are basically anything that impacts the way that your genes are turned on or off, but it doesn't actually change change your DNA. It's a a modification Mm -hmm. to it. So um, one example of that would be if if your mother doesn't have enough protein in her diet, the genes that metabolize protein in you would get 
silenced, we say. Mm. So then when you're born, you're more likely to not metabolize protein because when you were developing, your body thought, well, I'm not going to be seeing any protein when Mm -hmm. I'm born, so I don't need these genes. Um, So there's a lot of work being done in that in that field as well. Fascinating. Do you find, you know, going back to your really in-depth professional life that is probably takes a lot of work. I mean, are you coming to a conclusion with your PhD now? I'm sure, I mean, it seems just from, I'm inferring this from your social media, but it seems like it's taking up a lot of your time right now. And how does the running part of your life uh, interact with your, your professional life? Yeah, I think on my social media, I keep, I'm very, I'm just genuinely optimistic, maybe too much, but yeah. all right, I'm coming to the end. I'm coming to the end. <laughs> but I think now I'm really coming to the end, um, hoping to defend in maybe five months or so, mm-hmm. um, working on writing right now, which is good. And sorry, what was your question? Well, just how, how do they balance each other? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. That's good. Um, I think my my schooling really helps my running actually because mm-hmm. I think if I was left to my own devices and allowed to do whatever I want with running, I would probably get hurt pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. But um, having something else that's taking a lot of my time and attention really forces me to stop and not even think of myself as a runner for mm-hmm. parts of the day. So um, they're two very different things, but I think they balance out really nicely. Mm-hmm. And during the PhD, it was nice as well because I could go into lab, get an experiment going, go do a workout. Maybe it's not perfect because I only have an hour until it's done, the experiment's done, but it was just a nice balance to um, also have running to give me resilience with my research because anyone that's done research knows there's a tremendous amount of failure and it's nice to be able to you know, hang your hat on that. Okay. Well, at least I got that run in today. (laughs) Everything else failed, but I, I got a run in. I feel good about that. Yeah. Well, and similarly with running, there's always a lot of failure too. Yeah, that's true. in the case that you have a bad race or whatever, you can always hang your hat on. Well, I have this other amazing pursuit that I actually really care about as well. Next up is world-class ultra runner, Hayden Hawks on his recent performance at the JFK 50, where he broke Jim Walmsley's course record by three minutes. So at what point did you start to gain separation on those guys I just mentioned? Like, did you put in a surge at some point or was your pace just sort of steady and you gradually pulled away? Yeah, it was just kind of steady. Uh, So I'm kind of known as the guy that goes out really hard from the start, you know, and (laughs) it's come back to bite me quite a bit. And another thing I've learned, you know, it's being young and, and thinking, <laughs> I don't know, maybe having a little too much confidence going into races. I, mm. I always would push from the start and then I would go lactate and I would, it would, it sucked. Like, right. Yeah. I, I would have to suffer for a lot of the race because I just went out way too fast. And, yeah. and so this race, I wanted to try something different. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go out conservative. Like, whatever the lead guys are doing, I'm just going to run with them and just kind of stay in a pack or, or just kind of sit back and let them lead and, and try to stay as comfortable as I possibly could physically and mentally. And so that's what I did. I went out really conservative. I felt like, like I could have pushed it if I wanted to, but I, I, there was no need. It's 50 miles. Right. And I knew that the second half was going to be where the race was going to be. One was on the the tow path and on the road at the end. 
Um, because the first part of the race is, is there's a lot of AT, you know, you're on the AT for 13 miles or so with a couple road miles mixed in there. And, mm-hmm. and there's about, there's a little over 3000 feet of elevation gain in the race. And it all comes in the first 15 and a half miles pretty much. Yep. And then the, the next 35 miles after that are all pretty flat and runnable. And so if you don't have legs for those last 35 if you, if you destroy yourself on that first 15 on the AT, you're going to lose because mm-hmm. you need legs for that last 35 when the running happens. And so that was kind of my goal was just keep it conservative, stay under control, make sure you have legs come 30 or come 15 miles. So you can use those legs on the last 35. And, and honestly, I, I just wanted to race and have fun and run and yeah. That's what I did. <laughs> Heck yeah. Well, I mean, looking at your Strava file from the race is pretty ridiculous after the AT section, which as you said, is encompasses roughly the first 15 miles. You're, you're basically running sub six minutes pace the entire way to the finish. And uh, I'm curious. So you mentioned, you know, you didn't have the course record, you know, as like necessarily a goal at the front of your mind at the beginning of the race, but did you sort of start to realize that you were within striking distance when you were out there? And uh, how did that play into your psychology during race day? I honestly didn't think the course record was possible. Um, I'd gone over the, some of the data beforehand and Jim's AT section is out of this world. It's <laughs> so fast. Speaking of somebody who goes out really hard, I think uh, all you it's guys are similar. So yeah. Like I was like, I can't, I can't do that on the AT. Like I, I can't, I had tested out the AT before a couple of days before the race. And I was mm-hmm. like, I can't, I can't yeah. run that fast. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. And I was just like, yeah, so who cares? Like the, the course records out of the picture. There's no way I'm going to break it. Mm-hmm. And, and so coming off the AT, I was almost five minutes behind the course record. Wow. Pace, apparently is what I heard. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't looking at splits really. So I, I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, I got halfway or mile 27 is, is kind of where you get your first aid. And I made a shoe swap there at mile 27. And I came in and I just asked my wife, cause we'd kind of gone over splits like a few days before. And I said, yeah. how far am I off the record? And she said, man, you're probably like seven minutes off. Wow. So I was like seven minutes off the record at mile 27. And I was just, after that, I was like, yeah, it's, it's, there's no way I'm yeah. going to break it. So I just stopped looking. I stopped even thinking about it at all after mm. that. Like I didn't look at my watch at all. And I just ran and was just running and running. And, and, and it was crazy because after mile 27, like I was feeling good coming in, but then I, I made a shoe swap. I, I was wearing the Clifton's for the first 27 miles. So I could have a little cushion on the AT. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at mile 27, I switched to a, a, a flat, the Rocket X by Hoka, which is my favorite shoe, actually, that I think yeah. I've ever ran in. That's the, the carbon plated shoe, it right? It has a carbon plate, and it's really responsive. A lot of the marathoners use it, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so it's, it's an awesome shoe. And I was using it a lot in my speed sessions and on some of my tempo runs, you know, during training. And so I really loved the shoe. And and I jumped into that and it was crazy from after mile 27, I just started feeling even better. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
I, I didn't think I could feel any better. And, and all of a sudden I just started feeling better. And I just started clipping off like, like 530, 540 pace. And mm-hmm. it was like conversation pace at 530, 540 pace. <laughs> and it felt easy. Yeah. And, and after that, it just, I, I just kept going and going. And honestly, to answer your question, I didn't know I was going to break the course record till six miles to go. Really? Yeah. The, the race director was on a bike behind me. And he said something to the fact like, wow, man, you're running fast. He's like, you might've been able to get the course record. And I, I looked down at my watch and I, and I was just like, and I kind of calculated it in my head. Well, I yeah. got six miles to go. Wait, like, yeah, I might be able to get this course record. <laughs> like, I was like, there's no way. And, and I had to like pinch myself for a second. Cause I was like, what? There's no way. Like, I don't think that's possible. Like, so what did happened? that, did that uh, give you a little extra pep in your step over the last hour of the race? Yeah, because I like Lavaredo, for instance, Black Canyon. Um, I missed the course records at both of those by like one minute. Really? Mm. Like it was literally one minute. Uh, like I missed them. And yeah. I was like, you know, at that point I was like, I'm not going to let that happen again. <laughs> like I'm either going to break this course record by a minute yeah. or I'm going to miss it by a minute. And I yeah. do not want to miss it by a minute. And so I, I kind of like started trying to pick up the pace just a little bit. And I really didn't know if I would be able to, but I did. Yeah. And I, and I started feeling even better. Yeah. And I was like, Holy crap. Like what, what's going on here? And I had like a next, an, another gear with six mm-hmm. miles to go. And you know, luckily over those next six miles, I was able to drop the course record, you know, by not just a minute, but by, by three, almost three minutes. Yeah. So I was able to take even a little bit more time off and it just clicked, man. Everything awesome. clicked on that day. And, and honestly, I'm very glad that I wasn't focused on the course record. Cause I think that actually helped me. Okay, next up is my Red Bull manager, Aaron Lutzi, on the current environment on the industry side of professional sports. To me, it seems like, you know, your job is like the absolute dream, right? Like, it seems like just the coolest job in the world. I'm sure everybody would love to do it. I'm curious to sort of start down this path. What makes a good athlete in the 21st century competition and media environment? I think what makes a really good athlete in general is someone who not only is able to perform right on a on a physical level to be make to reach the top step of the podium, but also what does their entire ecosystem look like? You know, uh, do they have other things? For example, a podcast. Um, are they? You know, who is who is the community that that backs that athlete, and how have they kind of built and cultivated that? How do they approach? their sport and their involvement in the sport. So like, who's your coach? Do you have a mental performance coach? Do you have a nutritionist? Like what kind of infrastructure have you built around yourself? And you know, it's not a, it's not a specific like check this, check this, check this box. It's more like how, like you can learn a lot about an athlete just based off of the infrastructure they've built around themselves. Mm -hmm. Who are the people, you know, there's that quote of, you're the average of the five people you spend your time with, right? Um, is that James Clear? I forget. That is such a powerful yeah. thing. So think about like who, you know, probably their coach, their running partners, yeah. you know, um, who are those five people and like what do they bring to the table for that athlete? 
Um, there's so much more, and especially in today's kind of environment with all the media requests and requirements, an athlete who has a, a running start on some of that stuff, or at least has an understanding of how it works, is a huge thing because what are what are all brands asking for content-based stuff? And yeah. so if you have somebody who's equally capable at firing that out as they are firing out a proper training block in a great event, then... Um, there's there's a lot more to it than just winning everything. You know? How have you seen that change in the last decade, right? It used to be that, uh, speaking specifically about endurance sport, I mean, ultra running being a pro is a very new thing. But, you know, in the early stages of the sport, it was like all you had to do was win races and you got a sponsorship deal. Of course, it was very, very small in the early days. But now ultra runners are making pretty healthy livings. You know, the best best guys and girls in the world. And... You know, again, like at the beginning, it was you just had to win races, and then like people started having blogspot accounts, and now it's like this freaking just inundation of different social media, YouTube, podcasts, things like that. Do you have any comments about how things have changed in the last 10 years that you think are interesting and relevant? I think that with all the athletes, you know, everybody has their own kind of approach, which is kind of fascinating to see, you know, how people assemble their, their program, right? Mm -hmm. Like what they are willing to offer, what they are bringing to the table, you know, across the board, you see not only the performance rising for all these athletes, I mean, course records go down every year, right? Yeah. Or FKTs, whatever. And those people are also doing all these other things. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I think, the benefit from it is that the fans and other athletes in the sport get so much more out of it and are able to join a community around that athlete and get really behind them. Whereas yeah. before, maybe they didn't get that. And, and I think that the, the dollars that are being spent against that athlete are in recognition of that. Like you are someone who can, can reach out to, to all these people and, and really like share insight and, and information and, and whatever, as opposed to before, like, you know, you were getting paid because your name showed up in a magazine, you know, on, on the top right. of a list. Yeah. So like, you know, is, is Seems the, like such an innocent, innocent time. Weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> I just wonder if like, is the pay now commensurate with what you're actually providing as opposed to like in the past, was it more of just like a, I guess this is what we pay the guy that wins stuff, you know, yeah. um, for sure. Now there's, there's better, uh, yeah, there's better data to work with, like how many people watch this. I think, you know, one of the things that's really interesting from kind of an outside standpoint, if you look at gaming, for example, yeah. you can see how many people are watching a gamer play online when they're playing online. Yeah. I can tell you how many people are watching it. Whereas before, like every magazine would just juice their numbers. Oh, we printed yeah. 300,000 copies. Well, how many people actually read it? Yeah. Well, I don't know. We just printed 300, you know. So I think that's kind of interesting that you can actually really quantify everything in a way that you could never have before. Mm -hmm. And you can make a better argument for all of that now. Wow. Yeah. And, and the whole storytelling thing has become so important and I think has contributed to this phenomenon of sports like ultra running becoming quote unquote more professionalized and kind of the YouTube YouTubeification of the sport, I think is something that is, launched it on this kind of rocket ship trajectory that it's been on in terms of growth over the last decade since I got into the sport. And I think part of it is, you know, for people who were triathletes or whatever, endurance curious people, 
they see the stories of people like Ethan Newberry, the ginger runner, other YouTube contributors who tell stories within the sport with these beautiful visuals and these awesome stories of interesting athletes suddenly, you know, doing four laps around some city in an Ironman becomes a lot less attractive just because of that whole storytelling element, you know, not to say there's anything wrong with triathlon, you know, I'm a huge fan of the sport as well, but does that, uh, I mean, is that sort of what you're getting at in terms of the importance of storytelling and not only as an athlete from, but from a brand perspective? Yeah. I mean, it's specific to Ethan, you know, I, I can tell you that the, uh, the Wonderland film that he did with Gary was the, you know, one of the main reasons why I started running, um, and, and, you know, I was doing research about ultra running. It was around the time that you and I were talking for the first time yeah. and I wanted to know more about the space. I wanted to know more about it. And I watched this, this video on YouTube and I was like, the way that, that Gary talks about his process and what he's doing and how he's eating and how he's preparing and what he needs to do for the next segment, that opened a door in my head of, oh, I think I could do this because I could do those things and, you know, I can run. So maybe, maybe I could be an ultra runner someday. And then, you know, as you know, and the story continues, but, but yeah, think about how many new people have come into the sport of ultra running alone, not, not to mention all these other sports that are out there from seeing it done on YouTube. I mean, that's like the number two search engine in the world right yeah. now. You can learn probably just about anything shy of open heart surgery on YouTube at this point. Okay, in this final clip of the best of 2020 episode, we hear from Jim Walmsley about goal setting, his weaknesses, and his relationship with winning and losing. I think one of the other kind of interesting things that this sort of leads into is just like, this belief in yourself that it seems like you have and like, you know, your it's your willingness to set these huge goals and state them publicly makes it just apparent that you like believe in your ability to achieve them. And I think that's what really sets the great athletes apart from, you know, the good or average athletes. Does that self-belief come, come naturally to you? Is there something about stating your goals out loud and especially these really ambitious goals that you find helpful? Um, I, I mean, I, I would say just going to good goal or like good goal setting. One of the things is say it out loud, write it down and keep yourself accountable towards it. Um, I think that sets you up for better success than keeping your goals private and not letting yourself be accountable. Um, so I would say maybe that's a part of the way that I put pressure on myself to do the training, to show up to a race that I think is going to be competitive, uh, of where I want to be. And, um, yeah, just knowing that it's out there and don't skip today's run, like get out the door and even on hard days, go shuffle something or, or also just know like when the rest day is needed. So, but how do you cultivate that belief in yourself? And are there ever moments when, when you doubt yourself once you've stated these big goals? Oh yeah. I mean, even in races, I could be leading by 20 minutes and I'm just like, I'm going to crack, I'm going to crack <laughs> and just you like, hold it together for another mile and you just start breaking things down. So I would say, uh, things look way cooler on the surface than what's going on. And mm. 
I, I think I relate to people with just the self-doubt, the, your own personal lack of confidence and, or just going in training and going like, did I do too much? Am I going to bounce back from this really big block of training? Like, is it going to come back in the taper? Mm-hmm. Um, cause sometimes it hasn't. And, right. uh, but you just, so I'd say ignorance is really powerful. Don't overthink it. Just bully ahead. And, uh, yeah. Uh, ignorance, stupidity, bravery, courage. It's all the same. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, freeing to a lot of us to hear and understand the fact that even Jim Walmsley has self-doubt in himself sometimes, even though, you know, you've achieved so many great things and you're so willing to like put yourself out there publicly and, and just like make these really grand, set these really grand goals for yourself. Um, what, what part of your game do you see as your biggest weakness right now? Um, I mean the long stuff, like Like, when you start approaching 24 hours and through the night, I think is a crux that I haven't had success in quite yet. Like really good success where I feel like I've been really rock solid all the way through. Um, but it's also, I would say maybe a lack of focus on it right now too, because the bread and butter has been kind of around that 50 mile, hundred K, uh, or a fast hundred mile effort. That's not through a night. I mean, you're trying to race the night, essentially, even in these 50 miles, people are starting to bring out the headlights. And if I nail it, I'm probably not pulling out a headlight. So unless it started really late, yeah. but those are things that I think play into, um, complications and just, more situations you have to balance with uh utmb stands out hard rock i mean hard rock essentially just turned into like i'm not in a good spot to go through the night right now and go at eight hours straight of like i gotta get picked up like this just isn't how you start this section um but a lot of it's practice i think embracing the elements a bit more so i i see there's a lot of time to improve in that area. So it doesn't really concern me too much, but I think as I transition and dabble more and more and more in that realm, um, there'll be more failures, but also things will start to click and start to work out. And that's kind of just the general trend and progression you have to keep in mind on the long road of it. And, Mm -hmm. and I think, uh, like both of us, we're getting, little older and it's like well that's kind of the life that's calling us more so than the 50k uh pancake flat trail race like the fast kids are gonna show up to that one yeah dude you're 30 years old now i'm turning 31 next month are you really wow good for you man i turn 35 next year dude i can't believe it that's it Clock doesn't stop. <laughs> doesn't stop for anybody, man. Okay. Um, so do you feel like you have like a healthy relationship with winning and losing? I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned some of these failures where, I mean, you've still finished fifth at UTMB. You've dropped out one time and then you had this hard rock time trial thing that you've referenced now a couple of times. Do you like, 
when you don't win a race, for example, in the Azores last month, whenever that was at the Golden Trail Championship, you finished second, which is kind of an unnatural thing for you, especially in the last yeah. few years of your career. What's your relationship like with winning and losing? Do you get self-critical after when you don't win everything? Um, yeah, I'm definitely self-critical and trying to analyze what I could have done better, um, where maybe other people made ground where I was able to make ground and kind of feelings, um, about it. I would say, yeah, I'm still not a good loser per se, but at the same time, like you got to grow up with it. It's part of it. And it's part of how you, you make yourself better. And it's part of the process that's going to bring you back, uh, for the next race, a little bit more prepared and not cut off guard and flat footed. So, um, I, I think if you can take away positives out of it, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, just try to, to build off of it. And I think you learn a lot more out of the times that either you drop or things go bad or you get beat. Um, a lot, there, there's a lot more critical thinking going on. And when races go so well, you overlook so many things that do go well that a lot of times you don't learn as much from that. Holy smokes, that was a dense, dense episode. Thank you guys so much for listening for this first year of the show. Really excited to move forward under the pillars umbrella starting next week. And we have big, big plans for the future. So thank you guys for following along. If you haven't already, if you could spare two minutes, go over to iTunes, leave us a rating, a review. I would be super appreciative. Also follow us on Instagram at Pillars. Check out our website, pillars.com and subscribe to the app, which is gonna be dropping in just a couple of days, January 1st, 2021. It's gonna be great. Can't wait to see you guys there. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Love you, bye.